You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans, and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change, and when should we start building our rafts? Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything, available everywhere you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much. Join our Patreon for extra episodes, interviews, extra content, and to help support the podcast and help us continue to do the work we do. Go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl to learn more. I love the Romans so much. (laughs) I know, I love how horrible they are. I'm Jen McManamy. And I'm Jenny Williamson. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. We are so thrilled to be joined today by Dr. Emma Southern, creator of the History is Sexy podcast an author of my all-time favorite biography, Agrippina, Empress, Exile, Hustler, Whore. I think it was also renamed to Agrippina, The Most Important Woman in Rome. She is also the author of the brilliant A Fatal Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum, Marriage, Sex, and Death, The Family and Fall of the Roman West, and most recently, A Rome of One's Own, The Forgotten Women of the Roman Empire. Uh, That's the U.S. title, and the U.K. title is A History of the Roman Empire in 21 Women. Welcome, Emma. Welcome. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. We are so thrilled that you're here. This is going to be so awesome. (laughs) So I'm going to gush for a bit because I was first introduced to Emma's work when we were a baby podcast. I was writing my very first episode, The Ancient World Stark Family. It was the saga of the children of Germanicus and Germanicus in general. And I was doing the research into it. And I was super, super frustrated because there was a lot of stuff about Augustus and Caligula and all the men in the story. But where were the women? And Jenny and I were working close to deadline. (coughs) I was working close to deadline. And I was like so stressed because I didn't want to put out just another episode about the Julio-Claudian men in the Battle of Succession. And then literally Emma's book published the next day as I had to write the next part. And I told Jenny, I was like, stop everything. This is the most incredible thing I've ever read. I need to just tell everyone about it. And since then, five years ago, I have not stopped talking about this book or Emma's work. I have pre-ordered every one of her books. She's absolutely brilliant. They're humorous and they just make the Roman Empire and the Roman Republic just come to life. And at the moment, we're in the uh, the crest side of that TikTok wave about 
do you think about the Roman Empire or does your husband? And here's the thing. We obviously do. And Emma's going to tell you why everyone should and not just about the dudes in the empire. This is going up like probably more than a month after today. So that's going to be very old news by the time this drops. It's fine. I said we're in the crest of the wave. I didn't say we were in the break or maybe the break. It's been very fun for me. People keep sending it to me. And the first I heard of it was when my friend sent it to me. I was like, I don't know if you've seen this, but um, I think you might be one of the very few relationships in the world where you think about the Roman Empire more than your husband. <laughs> and I did ask my husband uh, how much he thinks of the Roman Empire, and his answer was as little as possible. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if people ask me that, I'm like, I think about the Roman Empire all the time, and nine times out of ten, it's Alaric of the Visigoths. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I'm always thinking about the Julio Claudians in that drama and why no one has written me a good, like, TV show based on it, except for I, Claudius, which is very old at this point in time. And also, women don't come off great in that. I'm also always thinking about my girl Locusta. How could you excise Fulvia from the series on Rome? <laughs> so you have already done quite a bit of writing about women in the Roman Empire. <laughs> What prompted you to write this book? What inspired you? Um, a spite, largely. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm motivated mostly by spite. But um, it was because, so in my other life, when I'm not writing or talking about Romans, I um, I work in a bookshop. So I used to be a bookshop manager, and now I just work there a couple of days a week. But there has been, as you will know, like a big trend in recent years amongst young women for retellings of Greek myth, particularly focused on Greek women in myth. And um, if you are a, an ancient history person, you have to pick a side. You pick the Romans or you pick the Greeks. Um, and I picked the, Greek, picked the Romans pretty early. And then once you picked a side, you have to kind of just low-key as a gentle rivalry believe that your side is inherently better than the other side. Um, it's, it's a bit like a sports rivalry. Like <laughs> you've got either Manchester City or you're Manchester United. So I kept seeing all of these books come out about the Greeks and I was like, the Greeks are getting too much attention and all of these women are mythical women and you know what the Romans have got? Better women who are real. Uh <laughs> I love it. That's amazing. And so, <laughs> and so partly uh, it was motivated by the spite that I wanted there to be a books out about women in Rome that uh, so that all of these people who are now interested in ancient history and, and ancient Mediterranean history as a result of those books and the kind of great work that Madeline Miller and Natalie Haynes and all the rest are doing can also realize that the Romans are the best. I love it. Don't tell our friend Liv from Let's Talk About Myths Baby, but... I feel you. <laughs> yeah, it's okay. They say the same thing about the Romans. And so if you ask them, they'll be like, oh, yeah, you know, obviously the Greeks are better because the women are all magical. And so <laughs> it's a sports rivalry. It's fine. <laughs> There's no right answer except that the Romans are better. <laughs> so you include 21 women in this book, ranging from the very beginning of Rome to the fall of the empire. This is like a thousand years of history. How did you choose the women that you wanted to include? So it was a a kind of weird process of elimination and up until up until right until the end really women kind of dropped in and out the early part was the easiest because there are just not that many women in early roman history because the way that the romans wrote it meant that they prioritized male stuff and it did not include that many women but i really wanted the book to cover the entire expanse of roman history so i wanted it to cover all of the 
period. So the foundation, the kingdom, uh, early, middle, late republic, and then the various phases of the imperial period. And I wanted it to cover a broad scope, so not just be women in Rome. And I really didn't want it to just be empresses in Rome. I didn't want it to be a political history of Rome, basically, a political history of the Roman Empire, because those exist. And when you start writing those, because you know, I've written the book about Agrippina, I've written other things, you end up writing about the men by default, because in order to explain what is happening, you end up describing what men are doing. It's really frustrating. So I, I wanted it to be a history of the Roman Empire that embraced lives outside of politics, lives outside of the military, lives outside of Rome, the city. And so once I'd got through the early ones, which were like Lucretia and Tanaquil and the kind of like the big stories that you can't really tell, like leave out because they're the only women that are there. I looked for women that would tell different stories. So I deliberately, for example, did not do Livia or any of the women who already have biographies about them when I was talking about the Julia Claudians. So I did Julia, the daughter of Augustus, to talk about how, what the impact of instituting a monarchy while pretending that you're not instituting a monarchy impacts like the lives of other people <laughs> oh you mean gaslighting an entire country yeah <laughs> gaslighting an empire not like million it's impressive yeah <laughs> the level of gaslighting yes <laughs> look that is the one thing augustus was pretty good at right i mean he was good at a lot of things but i don't give him much credit because he's augustus but his gaslighting propaganda game was second to none it was chef's kiss <laughs> i mean he's got to be good at that because he wasn't good at the military <laughs> to the extent that like when i was writing the stuff about the early myths about the foundation of rome and then about the sabine women and lucretia and all of that all of the versions that we have of those stories are from the augustan period so they're even when you are telling stories of hundreds and hundreds of years before Augustus, you're just repeating Augustan propaganda <laughs> because they have been shaped by his idea of what the role of the family and whatever is and what the role of women is in his version of Roman values. Yeah, that is one of the things that I shout at Jenny about all the time. I'm like the Augustan propaganda. I really want to do like maybe a mini arc about it at some point in time because it's wild how good it is, how pervasive it is. And how difficult it is to unpick it, you know? Is there anything about what we know about the mythology around the founding of Rome that is prior to Augustus? Um, no. <laughs> so we know that obviously there are versions because both Livy and Dionysus like reference other, and Ovid like reference other writers and say where they've got stuff from. But the version that they have sculpted is the version that Augustus wants and is the version that is palatable to this new monarchical vision of Roman power and the Roman family largely because those are the ones that were copied over and over again once you get into the imperial period. Dionysus of Halicarnassus is really good at saying all of the different people that he's read so he'll be like oh and he tells shows you how many different versions there are so when he describes the Sabine women for example he's like so some people say that there were 30 and some people say that there were 640 and some people <laughs> like there's a massive discrepancy this is blowing my mind right now <laughs> they're they're really interesting discrepancies they're not the normal sort of like round discrepancies you see when they're like glorifying an army 
And so, and you know, even he is like, you know, nobody can really agree on any aspect of this and they're telling, everybody is telling a story and they're fully aware that they're telling a story. Um, and so we know that there's lots of competing versions of myths going on and that everybody is happy to be aware that they're competing versions of myths. But the ones that mostly survive um, or that survive intact are the Augustan versions. But that's like this, that always reminds me of the story of, I believe it's the Aeneid, which was like famously in places unfinished. Virgil really didn't want to publish this, but Augustus was like, I really want this history done. So like he kept stringing it out and like on his deathbed, again, this is like a story I've read. I don't know where I read it. He was like, I want it burned. And Augustus was like, ah, ah, ah. (laughs) (laughs) Augustus was like, ah, sure, we'll burn it. Um, And then immediately published it. That's like one of the foundational myths linking, you know, Rome back to Troy. Not that Rome needed it. Like there are so many other cool Italian Etruscan and other Sabine uh, Alba tribes. Like it's great to have Troy in there, but it was unnecessary. Yeah, but what do the Alban tribes have, like, cool Homer references? No, they do not. No, and also they're not descended from Venus. You know what they have? They have thigh-high red boots. (laughs) (laughs) They do, and the Romans don't like that. They've gone right off high boots by the time of Augustus. (laughs) Julius Caesar liked it. (laughs) Julius Caesar was strutting around with his thigh-high red boots and his short tunic, if you remember. Good lord. And his loose belt, his suspiciously loose belt. Fringy tunic, love it, love it. Yeah, so basically I I chose the women based on, on trying to tell a story that has not already been told. Women that you probably have not heard of, women that don't already have their own books, women that are explicitly mostly either not related to politics and and the wars and the armies or if they are they're related in a way that is slightly askew so when I have got empresses they're empresses who are very often considered to be non-Roman the Syrian empresses and the Syrian usurper and when I have got people who are in the army it is the people who are in the army putting up curtains and having birthday parties not the people who Um, so I wanted to basically like undermine a little bit this version of the Roman Empire that we are seeing with like my husband thinks about the Roman Empire every day, which is that the Romans are this hard, masculine, militaristic space and to show that they are an empire full of people who also run businesses and have birthday parties and do stuff that is not just war and politics and that that is history as well. Absolutely, because it's all kind of been man-washed. Is that a word? It is now. It is now, and I think that this is really important work to bring these stories to the fore. Hello, everyone. Stakuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. 
What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. So, question, which woman that you included in this book do you identify the most with and why? Ooh. That's a good question. Probably, mm, probably Julia Felix. She's my favorite. So Julia Felix is this woman who uh, we know ran a business in Pompeii. Um, the business is like a, a, a leisure complex. And the reason that we know that she existed, that she ran this leisure complex, and even what the leisure complex is, is that at the exact time that Vesuvius erupted and buried the entire city, she had just put it up for rent. So on the outside of her complex, she had put a sign that read, Julia Felix, daughter of Spurious, uh, offers for rent this business, which includes apartments, shops, bars for the well-to-do, a hot food shop, inquire within, basically. Uh, and before that part, like the outside of the building was excavated, it was thought that it was just a very big, weird-looking private residence. But as soon as that context was added, it became clear that it was a business that she had opened and expanded in order to take advantage of uh, increased foot traffic from the amphitheatre as a result of a, an earthquake a few years before. And it's basically a, a middle-class business space. So it's a place where middle-class people can go to have a spa day and a nice evening, essentially. <laughs> And it has these amazing things, as far as we're aware, we've never found anywhere else, and they must have existed in other places, but a place where people can go to have a nice walk around some private gardens, uh, where they can lie and have reclined dining, like luxury upper-class dining for a price for one night in this beautiful little dining room that she had, Triclinarium. She will provide that as a one-night experience for people who can't afford to live elite, reclined dining life every day. Um, she will do that. And then on her atrium, instead of having the kind of paintings that you would associate with Roman spaces, like big mythical scenes or scenes of religious art or just loads of animals doing weird shit, what she has is what looks like a very, very realistic mural of Pompeii's forum on market day so it has all of these paint all of these people just buying things and selling things and teaching children and holding their baby on their lap or giving money to beggars or reading the notices on the notice board and finding out all the news and they're like just average looking people doing average looking things and they're people who can afford to educate their children but don't have the money to have a private tutor. So they're sending their children to a school to learn oratory or rhetoric or whatever, but it's to a school rather than doing it in the house. And they're people who can afford to buy brightly coloured fabrics, but they don't have the time and leisure and money to weave those fabrics themselves or have people in the household that weave them like the true upper class do. They have do have to go and buy them. And so it's like this middle class space of people who have a bit of money to have nice things but not so much money that they live the leisure lives. And that is who she caters to. And it's such a fascinating insight into a world where a woman who is apparently unmarried, apparently just running this business by herself, and has apparently reached a point where she wants to not be doing the day-to-day -day running herself. She wants to rent it out to somebody and she's going to just be a landowner and go and live somewhere else. 
And you're just like, what an amazing life. I love that her mural was essentially like the ancient Roman version of like a bunch of Norman Rockwell paintings, you know, like really glorifying like the common life of the middle class. I mean, middle class then probably had more money than a Norman Rockwell painting would have had. But, you know, it's that idea, that nostalgic feeling that's so incredible. Yeah. Like the average person in Pompeii who works but works a better job and who own a house but the house is it's just a house. It's a row house or a semi-detached three-bedroom, whatever. Like they're average people and it's one of the very few times that you get to see that. And also she seems to be unmarried and has no children and just living her life, whereas so many of the other women are, they are women whose lives at least partially revolve around their husbands and children, which mine doesn't, so. <laughs> and her name is Julia Felix. Like, Felix means lucky, right? Her name is Julia Lucky. I love her so much. <laughs> lucky Julia. Yeah. Like when, you know, if you're child free and people ask you why you don't have kids and you just say, I'm just lucky. Yeah. (laughs) Just lucky, I guess. That's what I'm going to say. I'm just, I'm Jen lucky. That's it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Which one that you covered do you feel has been the most misunderstood by history? Um, mm, Probably Claudia. I think Claudia gets a real bad rap because she is... Not that many people, I think, maybe know about her, but when they do, they tend to come at her either as Catullus's lesbia, um, and he's angry at her a lot of the time. Claudia is, for anybody who doesn't know, the a woman who's around and very involved in a lot of the late Republican politics. We know about her from three sources, which makes her one of the best documented women, pretty much, of all of Roman history. And she is largely remembered because Cicero writes this intensely excoriating, brutal character takedown of her. Oh, Cicero didn't like a woman. Sing me a new song. (laughs) (laughs) I know, right? She's also the sister of Clodius, Fulvia's husband, Jen. Yeah. So they're they're all good people. Uh, they're the most fun people. This I, I figured that with the name. Yeah, and Cicero with his with his little chickpea farm, his little chickpea nose, didn't have any any grudges at all against anyone ever. He's so unbiased. Under no circumstances was he constantly furious at Clodius, the man who invented a law to have him exiled and then burned down his house. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I am so mean to Cicero. He's like, he's so catty. And he's like, Jenny will go on and on about like, how could you just translate? I took Latin when I was in high school. She's like, how did you not get to translate letters to friends? I'm like, number one, I would not understand what letters to friends was. Number two, it was more important that I study the oratory and how like things were like put together. But honestly, knowing about Letters to Friends, I'm like, he's such a catty little gossip. He's such a catty gossip. He is... In my head, he's uh, basically Truman Capote. (laughs) (laughs) And also, like, when when he's in the court and he's doing some kind of a defense against a woman, like, his argument is literally just misogyny. That's what it is. It's just misogyny. I don't know. I guess people eat that up with a spoon over there. It works every time. And if it, like, why change a winning strategy? Yeah. I mean, he he wrote the Philippics just to tear down Mark Antony. And I'm like, I love it. Like, 
And Fulvia. Again, Cicero talking badly about a woman? Never. <laughs> yeah, so this that's kind of the main way that people know about her and is Cicero's accusations and then the fact that she is associated with uh, the lesbia of Catullus's poems in which she is in love with her completely even though she has a husband for about 10 of them and then hates her and thinks she is the biggest slut and the worst person and she stamped on his heart and she wasn't even pretty anyway and he can't believe that he ever even thought that about her oh boy i mean this is some incel nonsense in the ancient roman world and you'd think so except that he also writes just a ton of other poems about how many boys and girls he is also kissing Claudia allegedly wrote poetry of her own so I suspect that in an alternate universe or like if you were to be able to go back in time you would find loads of poems by Claudia about how she loved Catullus and he stamped on her heart um, and went off with Juventus instead and kissed him all night Um, (laughs) but because those are the things that survive about her we just have this very specific view of her as basically a woman who just had her tits out constantly and was uh, constantly luring boys into her orbit so that she could shag them and ruin their lives and is a murderer and just a, a kind of loose woman basically the worst kind can we get back to the murders? Yeah, tell us about the murders. <laughs> I feel like you glossed over that. I was like, yes, tits out. I'm here for that. Uh, not, not sure about the ages of the young boys, but maybe okay with it. As long as they're over the age of consent, it's good, but the murders. So, yeah, so she is... Um, the reason that that Cicero writes his... Def- his he's writing his defense of Caelius, who is a friend of his, who has been accused of trying to murder Claudia. And the reason that they are having this dispute is that um, he and Claudia had uh, worked together with some other people to try and murder, and I think successfully murdered, one of Cleopatra's ministers. (laughs) What? (laughs) Wait, what? (laughs) This is the best. This is the best gossip. I love this. Yeah, and, and then there had been some money exchanged, and then they had fallen out over this this murder plot that they were involved in while they were like in like deep in the politics of the late Roman Republic which is just largely people killing each other they had fallen out over this and then Caelius had attempted to poison Clodia Clodia had caught him and taken him to court and then Cicero's defense of Caelius is that he says she is only saying this because she tried to seduce Caelius and he said no. And so she's made up this story in order to hurt him. And she he calls her the Palatine Medea because Medea killed her own children so in order to hurt Jason. And she says Claudia is doing the same thing because she is making up these lies and is trying to kill Caelius in order to get back at him. And that is why he creates this persona of her as this like seductress who is constantly having parties that are very dubious indeed and sleeps with everybody and also does murders because quite possibly she did. Wow. I mean, that realistically may be accurate on the murder part, but she was surely more well-rounded as a person than that. And everyone murdered everyone at this point in time. Like, I'm sorry. It's only a bad thing if you're a woman doing it for power. No. I know. <laughs> See, the thing is that nobody really remembers the murdering part because he skims right over that because Kylius was very much involved in it. 
and because of lesbia and because of the way that he constructs it and he is annoyingly very good at constructing an argument (laughs) this is why i had to translate that (laughs) yeah you get this um vision like this really powerful vision of her as this woman who is seducing every man in rome but she is also very clearly both from what Cicero says about her, but also from the letters, Cicero's letters, very, very involved in the political kind of diplomacy of the era. And she is passing messages between everyone, between Caesar and Pompey, between Atticus and Cicero, between all of the big names in the late Republic. She is there being involved, handing out things like working on her brother's behalf and making sure that right up until the point that he is murdered, because everybody gets murdered, uh, and, you know, if we only had Cicero's letters and we didn't have the other two, we would have an image of a woman who is a very clever, very subtle political operator and who is very dedicated to her family, her natal family. But because we have these other two, the fact that she had sex with people just completely overshadows the rest of it. And she gets completely tarred with the brush of slut um, and nothing else is of any importance. But you can kind of be both things like you can be a bit of a shagger and you can be a a sexual woman and you can have affairs or just sleep with boys once she's widowed you can do what you like and also be a woman who is deeply involved in in politics so both of those things work at the same time and so i think she's actually a much more kind of interesting and and multifaceted character than just the kind of cruel the palatine medea that cicero and and catullus want you to think she is this kind of laughing beautiful demon woman it's so on point too for the roman republic and roman misogyny that like the worst thing about her isn't the murder it's the sleeping around yeah absolutely whereas julius caesar was sleeping with every woman and man in rome and everyone was like what a man the bald adulterer isn't that cute yeah i mean that was definitely held against him but like not to the not to the extent that it is against her it's not ruining her life no one's bringing up in court cases they're just laughing at him and he does not care No, does not. (laughs) Clodius strikes me as just the other side of the coin of Fulvia, right? Like, because Fulvia is doing similar things, not sleeping around. She's in charge of the street gang. She's operating behind the scenes, working with Clodius, who's Clodius' brother. It's kind of fascinating to see a family where two women are so heavily involved in what's going on behind the scenes. And you know Clodius' parties were where everything was being talked about and going down. My God, yes. They would be such good parties. And it, and Fulvia would be there and it would be amazing. No, it's, Fulvia was one of the women that I was like, because the late Republic has so many women that you can choose from. Um, and Fulvia was the other woman that I considered including. But Clodia won because I wanted to talk about Catullus. But, <laughs> but yeah, no, as like a... As a family. And they both get cut out of all dramas about the late Republic. Like, there's nothing which has Clodia in it and there's nothing which has Fulvia in it, like, on film or TV. But they are both so cool. There's nothing that has Clodius in it either, and that's a real missed opportunity. <laughs> like, the the three of them, like, you could just do such a good drama about about them and Milo and... <laughs> the manoeuvring they did, the streakings, I mean... The fighting, yeah. Listen, I love Titus Polo and Rome as much as the next person. However... This series absolutely needed these three and Milo just maneuvering like we didn't need made up characters. The real characters existed. They had huge dramas where they interacted with actual like big players at the time. Like 
Think of how cool it would have been to, like, have the court case of Clodia. I mean, okay, I'm all for seeing, like, Rome through the eyes of, like, the common folk, but, like, why did we have to cut out the women common folk in order to glorify the men soldiers? Sorry, I'm just gonna get off my soapbox now. <laughs> Sorry, give me 10 years and eventually I'll persuade someone to make the TV show that I want to make. <laughs> I will campaign with you. <laughs> I'm here, whatever help you need, research, whatever, I gotcha. <laughs> Script, whatever, I'm here. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Pele, Hawaiian goddess of volcanoes, fire, and rebirth. Maeve, Celtic warrior queen and nemesis of heroes. Kiyohime, Japanese fire-breathing snake demon. Pesta, Norwegian spirit of the Black Death. Our book, Women of Myth, is a fascinating look at women and femme characters in world mythology, including goddesses, heroines, and monsters with captivating illustrations by Ringo Award-nominated artist Sarah Richard, it's the perfect gift for the mythology lover in your life, including yourself. Find Women of Myth wherever books are sold. So, the women that you covered are so different. Noble women, commoners, women who rebelled against Rome and who were part of the Roman system. And did you find any common threads in their stories? The main one that ended up coming out, and I don't know if this is just a function like of my unconscious choices that I made when I was choosing them, was how much so many of them made you question what a Roman was, or made the Romans question what a Roman was, and how much in kind of 19th, 20th century writing about Rome, and the women who who were involved in the things that were going on have been excluded from being a Roman a lot of the time, or have been considered to be behaving in a kind of un-Roman fashion, even if they are behaving exactly like the men are. Like Clodia, for example, or like Zenobia is one who, to my mind, very, very clearly is just another usurper, not like just another usurper, she's the only female usurper. But in the third century crisis, you have virtually every general in the entire empire declares himself an Augusta and takes the, the troops that he leads and fights other Roman legions in order to try to take the Roman throne and be the guy who is the one last guy standing. And that is exactly what Zenobia does. She takes Roman troops and she fights other Roman troops and she takes over Egypt and then she declares herself an Augusta and prints Roman money with her Roman gods on it and presents herself as entirely a Roman ruler within the Roman state. She's basically just a usurper in Egypt. But because she's from Syria and because she is a woman and because she's not writing in Latin, she always gets called an invader um, and somebody who is attempting to either create, like split off from the Roman Empire and create her own empire or invade the Roman Empire. But she, to me, is very clearly... Roman and in a lot of the what I ended up writing about a lot of the women because of their gender and or because they were not a very precise like from Rome for example or male because like uh no one ever questions whether Septimius Severus is Roman. He's born in Libya. Um, he there's a lot of questions over the color of his skin for reasons that aren't really relevant. 
And he doesn't have Latin as a first language. He apparently has an accent, but no one ever questions whether he's Roman. But Julia Domner, Julia Mesa, Julia Mamea are regularly just called Syrian because they're women, basically. There's no difference between them and are often portrayed as uh, an oriental feminizing of Rome and, and, and because they are female and because they are from the east, quote unquote, they like so much writing about them questions their Romanness. But they're in Rome, ruling the Roman Empire. Like how much Roman Roman can you be? And so a lot of what uh, I ended up writing about, which I didn't really mean to, but came up in a lot of this women that appeared was kind of questioning or trying to expand the idea of Romanness away from Cicero, basically. It's not just one white guy standing in a white toga next to white column in a shiny white uh, a shiny white Rome. It is also all of these people all over the world. It is Arabian people, it is Syrian people, it is British people, it is Dutch people, it is people who move around a lot and who might never go to Rome or go to Italy or even go to mainland Europe. But Romanness is so expansive and it is very often through the women that you see the expansiveness of it because they don't have the traditional obvious trappings of Romanness because they don't wear togas, because they don't join the army. And those are the two very obvious ways that you can tell someone is a quote-unquote Roman. Then they kind of make Romanness and Roman identity slightly more complicated. And I like that about it. And yeah, I suspect that it is a function of how I ended up choosing them. And then a lot of the questions, like it came up again when I started writing about Christian women and like, at what point can a Christian be a Roman? Because they're in opposition for the first 300 years of Christianity. And then there is a point when it switches and you can say, saying... I am a Christian no longer means I am not a Roman. It can then now mean I am a Christian Roman. Yeah, like so the way that gender kind of complicates Roman identity and how modern people have thought about Roman identity ended up coming up way more than I thought it would. That is fascinating. And it's just fascinating that like people like Julia, Mamea and Maisa, like they, they were, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the grandmother and mother of Elagabalus, right, who was the Roman emperor at a certain point, <laughs> empress, you know, like possibly. Mamea is the mother of um, of Alexander Severus um, and Mesa is the grandmother of Elagabalus and Alexander Severus. And she is deified, by Alexander Severus. Like when she dies, she's deified. So she's technically a Roman god. <laughs> the mother and grandmother of of two Roman emperors and they don't get to be Roman themselves. Like that is a little bit blowing my mind. <laughs> yeah, um, it's super, I'm gonna say super fun in the most sarcastic way I possibly can to read what kind of Gibbon and Gibbon inspired people write about them because they are spectacularly racist. I was gonna say racist, maybe some transphobic people as well, because there's a lot going on with Elagabalus that has been maligned for a long time. I'm not saying Elagabalus was a good ruler, but you know. Yeah, well, yeah, Dio, who is um, the one thing that he has personal experience of is he comes up under Alexander Severus and um, and he personally experiences Elagabalus and goddamn, he does not like him. <laughs> 
his descriptions and writing about Elagabalus are vicious and transphobic. <laughs> if you want to understand Elagabalus as a trans person or as a person with a very fluid gender identity at the very least, then yeah, he does not like very underpinned by Dio's misogyny. But yeah, so like the passages of Dio about Elagabalus are like, wow, that is like you can feel the the very personal spite. <laughs> oh yes, writing for spite that Dio was one of the originators of that. Yeah, it will power a lot of things. I think Elagabalus, much like his his female relatives, you know, his or her female relatives, they all push those Roman buttons about feminized Easterners, you know, so you can kind of see that that one very specific trope coming through. And, and like Cicero did so many years ago, the Romans tended to shove people into tropes in order to demonize them. So you have to ask yourself, like, how accurate is this versus how much is this the trope they wanted this person to be in so everyone would agree to hate them? Yeah, and again, you know, uh, if it works, why change your winning formula? And it works pretty much every time that they can be like, ugh, the Easterners. And it did continue to work well into the 20th century until uh, people started to be like, hang on a minute, we can't just go around saying that an entire half of the world is not good because it's not us. That's ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, you could say this is still happening today. Yeah. But now there's pushback, so at least we have that. Yeah, at least we interrogate history a little bit more complexly. It's one of those things that I didn't I didn't realize when I was an undergrad was something historians did. I just thought they looked at the sources and kind of made their arguments. And and again, maybe maybe that was something at the time that was being done. But like knowing what I know now about like how we're looking at in just modern stuff, like not just ancient stuff, like how we're looking at the history of pirates and how piracy was a space for queer people. I love that we're finding the spaces in history, both ancient and modern, to tell stories that a lot of the time got overlooked in favor of like the grandeur of a military campaign. Sorry, I'm rolling my eyes so hard in this blanket fort. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I do always think that um, if I had a, a wish to if I could be anybody in history, I would be an aristocratic guy in like the end of the 19th century who gets to go to a gentleman scholar. <laughs> I would be a gentleman scholar and I would go and do my undergrad at Oxbridge. Then my life would be just traveling to Italy and like looking at one thing and being like, God damn, because I, I'm going to know Latin and I will also I will read Tacitus in and I will think that Tacitus is just a profoundly accurate and fully correct person. And then you just copy out Tacitus and then go, and that that's history. There you go, lads. And everyone's like, uh, <laughs> like, what a brilliant life. Obviously, we're writing much more interesting, complex, fun, like knotty little histories that are more fulfilling to be writing, but it would be much easier to just be like, and then the Roman army did this, and then the Roman army did this, and then Nero was bad, and Cicero was good at the end. (laughs) But Emma, just think about the antiquities. You could just be like, I'm just going to take this home with me. Your generational wealth of just having taken someone else's stuff because, you know, I spoke Latin and uh, yeah, this is history. I spoke Latin and I had the British army behind me and nobody could say no to me. What a great life they lived. Like, obviously, I'd be a bastard and I would ideally correctly be stampeded by a horse or something. But, you know, I reckon being a bastard was probably a great life. (laughs) 
Yeah, and I mean, a lot of times they didn't get stampeded by a horse until they were old anyway. Yeah, <laughs> almost none of them died horribly. What did you learn about living as a woman in the Roman Empire that we don't normally think about today? Like, what was, like, different about their lives that women just always had to think about? I mean, I kind of knew this anyway because my master's degree, I read, like, 10,000 female epitaphs. But something that I think that people probably don't think about for women's lives in the past is how dangerous having children was. Now, like, we have such low rates of uh, like in general like low rates of maternal mortality in uh in the west anyway but in the ancient world it was probably like one in three would be un- like non-survivable by either the mother or the child and like just the fact that when women chose to have children the risk that they were taking and the the potential, like how much of a different experience I think it would be. One, you don't have the knowledge about what is happening to you that you have now. Like you do not have the ability to test for things. You don't have the ability to know that you're pregnant until the child starts moving, which is quite late. But also that it could very much be a choice to have children. Like they do know about contraception. They do know how babies are made. Um, and they do know how to end an early term pregnancy um, and how to prevent conception like reasonably well and so it is a a choice i think is something that people don't don't realize but they think that women are just constantly falling pregnant um and don't have anything that they can do about it and that they are just kind of left to the whims of nature like they have no agency over what is happening to them but they they do and they they don't have the the kind of pre-christianity they don't have any of the moral questions around contraception and abortion that exist now that uh, hamper a lot of things but yeah so the amount of people who choose to have children under those those circumstances was always impressive to me but also uh, you see a lot of women that don't seem to have children so julia felix doesn't seem to have children julia barbia doesn't seem to have children once Christianity kicks off, loads of women like take the opportunity to go and live lives where they they don't have to have children. And motherhood is not a, a universal experience of all of all women in the ancient world, and it is not. And motherhood is not the experience that is perhaps one that is relatable to us. For those of us, you know, I'm not a mother, but you know, women in the modern world, <laughs> we're not. <laughs> Neither of us are either. Yeah. <laughs> It's nice to to hear and, you know, maybe this is one of those things that, like, it's really important that you have women uh, who are telling these stories about the ancient world, that motherhood isn't the defining experience of all women across all the generations in the ancient and modern world, because that is a narrative that is repeated a lot, which excludes a lot of women and is kind of hurtful. Yeah, and, and and makes it look as though choosing to not have children is a function of a post-1960s feminism, basically, rather than an experience that women have chosen throughout history. And it is, like, there have always been women that don't have children, either because they can't have children. And, like, one of the women in my book is Turia, who, who doesn't have children, although she desperately wants them, but her and her husband decide to stay together even though they are infertile together and they never have children and they're very sad about it, but they live a life without them and that they come to terms with that and they decide that their marriage is more important than uh, than than either of them having children. There is always has always been a, a part of the world is is 
women who are not mothers and motherhood is not a universal experience and motherhood is not an experience that is integral to every woman's life and there's no point in reducing women just to wombs and the production of children and then the interference with their children's lives it is uh, being a woman is being a whole person whether they have children or not augustus would be appalled at you saying that <laughs> <laughs> he's just he's if he hadn't been cremated he'd be spinning right, in his grave appalled <laughs> right now. i can feel the the spite emanating <laughs> <laughs> It's actually really good that you brought up Turia because she was one of the women that I really wanted to talk about. That was one of my favorite chapters for lots of different reasons. Um, but could you tell us just briefly who she was and how we know about her? Because I just love this story. So uh, Turia, we don't know for 100% that her name is Turia. That's just the name that she has been given because she is the uh, subject of the longest biggest private inscription that survives from the Roman world and it is two like two meter high monoliths that her husband put up for her after she died he put them on the Via Appia and then uh, the Christians broke them up and kind of started using them as useful bits of marble to hold up buildings and the like but in the uh, late 19th century German scholars went round and collected up as many inscriptions as they could find and they reconstructed this huge monument which tells the life of a, a very elite woman a woman of consular rank and lots of money from the late republic who doesn't appear anywhere in any of the written sources as far as we can tell but she dies before her husband and he is so heartbroken that he inscribes his entire funeral oration onto the stone and puts it up so that everybody will know about her and it tells the story of her life the beginning bit is lost so we don't know anything about her childhood or her name um, which feels like so it's like a perfect little encapsulation of writing women's history that her name would be knocked off <laughs> shocked yeah weird that he only says her name that time in that section too yeah i think there's like, we've got four chunks and there's a couple of bits of missing because there's a bit that's missing around about the assassination of julius caesar and the rise of octavian so it might also be in there but uh basically during the civil wars between caesar uh, and pompey uh, they're supposed to get married but he goes off to fight in the wars he chooses the wrong side and he goes to fight for pompey and while he is away in the chaos of the civil wars Turius family are murdered on their villa and she single-handedly prosecutes them uh, she identifies and prosecutes the murderers and then she is caught up in a kind of scam basically like where people try to claim her as part of their gens as part of their family clan so that they can take her inheritance and she fights them in court in the middle of a civil war so hard that they basically have to back down and it becomes not worth the effort to try to take her under guardianship that part fascinated me because it reminded me of like conservatorships now like the thing that happened to Britney Spears like this happens to elderly people in the US sometimes where a conservator who is a professional conservator will come in and take over the life essentially of an older person who may or may not have dementia or you know be impaired in some way but sometimes they're not impaired in some way it's just that they don't have family to step in and handle this yeah and they they sign over their power of attorney and then 
like somebody gets to spend all of their money and give themselves their house yeah right that's what happens so it happens to elderly people now so i'm just like holy crap like this could happen to women at any point if they're alone in the roman empire or the roman republic they're technically not legally adults who have agency under the legal system right yeah and with her father dead and she doesn't have any brothers she only has a sister and her fiance the guy she's betrothed to is off fighting in the war so she doesn't have any male protection so she finds somebody and basically does it herself which is amazing and then she moves in with her future mother-in-law and then puts loads of effort into bringing her husband or her fiance back from he's fighting around macedonia so she when pompey is killed and it's clear that everybody's gonna lose she has him brought back and she uh, appeals to julius caesar and gets him pardoned for his for choosing the wrong side they then get married they're living in milo's house people attack and try to burn down milo's house and she fights them off so while um everybody is distracted basically milo's followers try to stage a comeback um because he's been exiled and they try to take the house back it's a demonstration of how rich she is that she's living in milo's house because that is a big house like on the palatine but she literally fights them off eventually she comes back they get married um she has personally uh intervene to make sure that he can come back and he just immediately chooses the wrong side again um and <laughs> <laughs> De- he's a dedicated like optimate basically so when caesar is assassinated and that bit is sadly missing and then the everything kicks off with octavian he sides with the assassins <laughs> This dude! (laughs) Of course he does. Of course he does. You get the impression that this is just a really bumbling guy. Like, (laughs) you really do. God bless him. She's inexplicably devoted to this guy. (laughs) (laughs) She loves him. God bless her. Yeah, so he sides with the assassins. He goes off um, and he sides so hard with them that when uh, the triumvirate, Lepidus and Mark Antony and Octavian do their prescriptions where they publish the list of 2,000 people that they are going to have executed and take all of their stuff for being traitors to the Republic. Uh, He's on that list. And so he is turned basically into prey. And he writes that Turia hides him in an attic. I imagine it was George Bluth up there. (laughs) They made me take that line out of the book, but basically I imagine it was George Bluth in the attic. (laughs) Um, But he, uh, so he's in the attic, he's hidden up there. And then she starts a campaign to first, um, she appeals to Octavian and she gets Octavian to pardon him. And then when Lepidus refuses and rejects Octavian's decree, that he's pardoned she makes a huge public scene and like throws herself at Lepidus's feet and forces him to like drag her away and basically humiliates him into pardoning her husband there is nothing that she will not do for this man like she properly like launches herself on the floor and gets herself beaten by soldiers like in an attempt to save her husband's life like that's how much she loves him and so she gets him off the prescriptions and he is allowed to live safely again so he She has now basically saved him about five times from being killed, including literally by Octavian. And then eventually when everything settles down and Augustus becomes Augustus and there's no more bad sides that he can choose, they start settling into a life. And it's at that point that they find out that um, they are infertile, that they can't have children. Obviously, you don't know which one, but in the ancient world, it's always assumed that the woman is failing. So he says that she does all of, like everything she can think of to try to 
cure her infertility. But when it's clear that they're not going to have children together, she comes to him with a proposal. And this is such a like Roman proposal. <laughs> That she says, look, I'll divorce you, you can divorce me, but we will keep our property together. So legally, you'll still be my guardian um, and you'll still be the person that looks after all my property and I'll still live with you, but we won't be legally married. And then I'll find you a young, fertile wife. And that way you can have heirs and I'll just kind of hang around and I'll be like a sister-in-law and I will help you raise them. You're like, "Uh, is the is this young wife going to agree to this? Like, I don't see how this could possibly go wrong. <laughs> no, under no circumstances would this turn into the most dramatic situation. If this had happened, she would be like the world's worst sister-in-law, like the sister-in-law from David Copperfield, like ruining everybody's life. Emma, you keep saying sister-in-law. Call her what she is, sister wife. She's a sister wife, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> So that's what she would be. So because basically she would still be there being like, they would still be in love. They would still be in a relationship. They He would still be her guardian, but he would be legally married to another woman who would have his children and then they would raise them as a throuple. <laughs> but he is like, he's deeply touched by this. And he says, basically, that is such a thing that you're offering to give up, but I would never disrespect you in this manner. Like, I'm, thank you for offering that, but I love you more than I love the idea of having heirs, basically. I would rather have you as my wife than have children, which is a lovely thing. Um, and then they live together. They're together for 50 years. She dies when she's in her 60s, and he is devastated. Like, the last lines of the inscription are like, I would do anything to have died first. Like, I have no solace and no joy in my life anymore. All I do is cry. And you were the best thing that ever existed in my life. And there is nothing that is good about the world now. But I just really want everybody in the world to know how great you were. Even though he picks the wrong side and he comes across as like he needs her to save him constantly they're both like clearly dedicated to the side of the optimates against the populares like they just don't believe in their cause but they pivot and they stay together and they have this love story that is beautiful and very conservative but really lovely and they choose to be like an older couple and i imagine them as being like that couple that you see like holding hands and like still kissing in the street when they're in their 60s and being adorable and like genuinely loving each other through all of the bullshit that is the civil wars and augustus and all of the like pressure and nightmares and literally being persecuted by octavian do you still get these like love stories in the middle of it all you know i remember reading just so many horrible stories about ancient world marriages and this absolutely isn't limited to Rome where the woman is just kind of married off to somebody and she's 14 and he's 56 and this is a terrible situation like it's just like wow sometimes people really did love each other and it was consensual like that is a beautiful thing to be reminded of it is and sometimes you know and so much of roman marriage particularly roman elite marriage in the late republic is presented as like oh this was a a, a marriage between two people who did not like each other or it was an agreement between two dads or two guys in the senate did a handshake deal on the situation and the women is just kind of launched about 
and then all of a sudden they're divorced or whatever. So it's really nice to see that there could be a really genuine feelings and that there could be like true love in the ancient world. And that even if though their marriage probably was like arranged, it probably was dealt with by their parents, but that it could still be something that made both of them genuinely really happy. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I love that story. I just thought it was brilliant in so many ways. And also just the the idea that if you are a woman alone, you're vulnerable to like a conservatorship takeover. Like I never even thought of that, but it makes a lot of sense. Just wow. But also that a husband could respect that like this woman had stayed by him through everything and okay, we can't have children. Okay, the world says it's your fault. I don't care. I would just rather be with you and enjoying a life with you. I mean, also, let's be honest. She's his safety net. Like, <laughs> <laughs> odds are if she wasn't around, he would make another bad mistake. Oh, he'd be dead several times over if she wasn't around. I mean, that's very clear. He'd probably fall down a hole or something if she wasn't holding on to him. <laughs> He's down in the sewer. Can't figure out how to get out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he went to the baths, <laughs> the public baths, and that was it. Like, oh, God, I have to fish him out of a drain again. <laughs> <laughs> But it's nice, especially when because there's so many stories from that period of like Cato, like just going home and telling his wife he's going to divorce her and marry her to some guy he met in the Senate. Or like Caesar divorcing his wife so that no, there can be no suspicion on Caesar's wife. and Or Cicero marrying the kid, like a child that he is a guardian of because he's a creep. There's so many of those stories. So it's nice to see that there were other ways to live that weren't just women being like monstrously passed around by by horrible creepy men jen you had a favorite you wanted to talk about too right well i have so many favorites but i'm gonna focus on the julian claudian drama of it all because i am a soap opera you know drama girl and also julius caesar um the first princess of rome she doesn't get as much like attention as she really deserves because she's wild can you tell us about her and what it meant to be a princess of Rome and how she shaped and defied the narrative for many women who would come after her and what her life and death meant to our understanding of what it meant to be a Roman woman? How uh, you could. And basically, I just want to hear about her sex life. I mean, that's what I want to hear. <laughs> all right. Let's just talk about her sex life. She's getting all serious, Jen. Like, I just. Can we hear. The filthy gossip. <laughs> filthy gossip. Okay, so Julius Caesar is the daughter of Augustus. Um, there is also a Julius Caesar who is the daughter of Julius Caesar because all people in ancient Rome have the same freaking name. Oh, yeah, the same first and second name. Like, should we go through Caligula's sisters? <laughs> yeah. Mark Antony named his all his boats the Antonius, too. Unbelievable. Yeah, but Ju the one in the book is uh, the daughter of Augustus, who is living a fairly normal life of the normal kind of elite woman. She is his daughter with Scribonia, who is his wife before Livia, and they divorce on the very day that Scribonia gives birth to Julia. Divorces Scribonia so he can marry Livia. Livia was like six months pregnant with Tiberius, no, with Drusus. But he then kind of basically pays no attention to Julia for a while because he assumes that he is going to have children of his own with Livia and that they will have sons and those sons will carry on. And if there is an alternate universe somewhere where he has a son with Livia, where the child that they have survives and um, where Julia gets to just kind of swirl around in a corner somewhere. But what 
happens instead is that he doesn't have any other children and so he scoops up Julia, takes her to Rome around about the time that he becomes the last man standing in the civil wars and is setting himself up as the monarch of Rome and beginning to gaslight the world and he then basically imprisons her and she then starts to lead a life that is very different to all other Roman women. So like particularly in the late Republic, but in general, like the Romans have never been one for locking up their women and hiding them away. You don't get that thing with Roman women that you do with like ancient Greek women where people are like, oh, we never see her and she's kept in women's quarters. Like there is always women and men mingling together. They're always in public space. They're always at dinner parties and in the theatre and, you know, they're never locked away. But Augustus takes the approach that every aspect of his life needs to be controlled and perfect. And that includes Julia as soon as she becomes important to his succession plan. And so she is locked away and all of her visitors are controlled. She is only allowed to do like weaving and learning the things that Augustus says she's allowed to learn. Augustus is such an unbelievable control freak that he makes it a rule that she can't have any visitors that he doesn't personally approve of. They can never be boys. And when she speaks, she is only allowed to say things which are appropriate to be written in the household diary. So if she's like caught saying things which are not appropriate for public consumption, basically, then. Because Augustus lives his entire life preparing for his legacy. Like, to a, a mildly deranged degree, it's amazing that he didn't go mad. Like, there's this letter to Tiberius, which is preserved, where he says that he allowed everybody at a dinner party who beat him at dice, uh, or no, that he beat at dice, to not have to pay him his winnings, because the memories that they have of him being generous will help him to be raised to immortal glory. Oh. And that's what he's thinking about. <laughs> all the time deranged is the appropriate word for that yeah i mean considering what comes after him <laughs> yeah but so because she becomes a, a princess within this monarchy and because she therefore is important to his his view of what the world should be like his idea of what traditional roman morals are and what a traditional roman woman should be she gets stuck being forced into this mold basically and then he starts marrying her off to people. So he's because he can't have a male heir of his own and he's a bit obsessed with genetics, he then starts marking his heirs by whether they're married to Julia or not. So son-in-law becomes a stand-in for son. So he marries her to his nephew, Marcellus. When Marcellus dies, he marries her to Agrippa, um, his like right-hand man. They seem to have quite a nice marriage, to be fair. They actually seem to quite like each other. Agrippa is like the same age as Augustus. So he's he's quite, you know, he's the age of her father. Not uncommon, Jen. In fact, probably usual. <laughs> I'm saying they had a nice marriage, but also like... <laughs> It's a weird marriage. It's a weird marriage. It's not weird in the Roman elite context, but it's weird for us to be like, oh, okay, cool. You're married to sort of your dad. She married her dad's BFF, like the only person who could stand Augustus, pretty much. Super creepily. Um, so Augustus doesn't go to her first wedding because he is busy in Spain. And so Agrippa stands in for him. So at her first marriage to Marcellus, Agrippa does the role of her dad, basically. <laughs> <laughs> And then at her next marriage, she's marrying that guy. 
I love the Romans so much. <laughs> I know. I love how horrible they are. Um, but yeah, so she's married off. They have five children. Two of them are immediately adopted by uh, Augustus and Ray. So her first two sons are adopted by her dad and her two sons become her brothers, which is nice. He then starts training them up to be heirs. And then Agrippa dies and you kind of think that now she's had five children. He has his heirs. He doesn't really need her anymore. She is now in her 30s. She thinks that she might be left alone. Technically, by this point, Augustus has passed a law that says if you've got three children as a woman, then you're exempt from guardianship and you can live your own life. But that does not apply to princesses. And so what he does instead is when Lucius and and Gaius, her children, both die, he forces her to marry Tiberius. And that marriage is one of the biggest disasters of the ancient world. He forces Tiberius to divorce the wife that he loves very much, who is called Agrippina, but not any of the Agrippinas that anybody knows about, and is technically Julia's stepdaughter. But also Tiberius is technically her brother. (laughs) I mean, obviously they're not related by blood, but technically she grew up with him and he's her brother. So she's married her father and now her brother. Because her brother sons died yeah <laughs> uh-huh it's so wild <laughs> and it is just it does like they absolutely despise each other reasons vary over who despised who the most but they just l- loathe each other very violently tiberius takes himself off into exile julia then goes basically very spitefully starts having sex with everything that moves <laughs> and maybe some things that don't move she very publicly, she starts sleeping with Mark Antony's son. Um, she sleeps with Mark Antony's son, allegedly on the rostrum, which is decorated by this time with the prows of the boats which defeated Mark Antony at Actium. So it's like a, a such an unbelievable fuck you to her dad. <laughs> you know, Mark Antony would approve, I think. What a flex. But wait. I'm assuming, can we just like dial back to Mark Antony's son? Because again, this family tree is a circle. We're assuming this is one of his sons with Fulvia and none of his none of his children with Octavia because technically Mark Antony's sons were her brothers or her cousins-in-law. Her cousins, yeah. No, no, it's Ilias, uh, who is the youngest of her children, of his children with Fulvia. What a fuck you, because Augustus and Fulvia hated each other. And Augustus is furious like way more furious than i think she potentially expected him to be but he exiles her to an island but he's such a drama queen when he wants to be augustus one of her freed women who is also kind of in this scandal and is also apparently shagging everybody takes her own life she kills herself and um augustus is like i wish my daughter had done that harsh <laughs> jeez he refers to her as a boil for the rest of her life. Um, anytime people, because people liked her, um, and they think that in general, like the populace of Rome thinks he's incredibly harsh exiling her. He exiles her to an island for five years and won't let any men anywhere near her. And then he lets her move to a small city in southern Italy. But he still like very carefully controls who has access to her. But every so often the people of Rome will go to him and like petition for her to be returned to the fold and he just loses his mind every time and is get like becomes furious and is like, 
she's basically dead to me. She's a traitor. I've written her out of my will. She's not allowed to be buried in my mausoleum. Like, she is not part of the family anymore. It's just not thinking of his legacy. No. Well, the problem is he is. <laughs> well, he is because he's like, you know, I have like staked my, like his reputation so much of what he has fought for has been introducing these adultery laws. Like he l- used up a lot of political capital because people hated those laws around the family. Like these laws around adultery, around the correct behavior of women, about the idea that a woman's job is to have children and shut the fuck up and support their man and nothing else. It genuinely seems to be something that he believed in, that this is what he thinks is correct emotionally, not just that it's something that controls, like, as a a logical way to control the Senate. And he's genuinely, like, feels betrayed by what she has done because he he sees her as, like, an outlet for his power and she sees herself as a person. And he can't wrap his head around that. (laughs) Women are people? No. Augustus, like, codified the patriarchy and wrote it into law. The laws we follow now, that's what terrifies me about men who are, like, Bams of Augustus or, like, the early empire. I'm like, that's a lot of misogyny and people not being people. (laughs) You really want to be a fan of that? Or are you just interested in, like, the time period and how things work? Like, can we break that down? Because it it wasn't a good time to be anything other than, like, a high-ranking dude who came from an old family like that's really where you want to lay your hat so yeah a lot of these people who like love augustus or who love this period are imagining that they would be augustus or that they would be one of the gripper maybe at worst Uh, but they imagine themselves in that position and like that's why you know mark zuckerberg loves augustus so much or whatever so he literally imagines that he is augustus which is terrifying because Augustus is a sociopath who has just a real laser vision. And honestly, there's a would you go back and kill Hit- baby Hitler? And there is a would you go back and put teenage Augustus in a cold bath and reduce his rubbish immune system? This is why nobody takes him seriously at the beginning, because he's a sickly teenager. And everyone's like, eh, he'll probably like, he's always wearing like four jumpers all the time because he is so afraid of the cold. Like he'll probably keel over any minute. And he just won't die. He's had a lot of time being sickly to formulate his master plan. And it is a disgusting master plan. Yeah, he's so scary. And he's so single-mindedly focused on recreating the Roman world in his own image. And he does it very impressively uh, to the extent that then for thousands of years most people have been like, what a great guy Augustus was. And it's only when you are somebody who like physically cannot imagine themselves as Augustus like if you are a woman and you know it's we're still only a couple of generations into women studying and writing about the ancient world in any serious way it's only been like 40 years 50 years maybe and it's only if you are a woman or if you are a working class person or like myself if you're a working class woman and you like physically cannot imagine yourself being Augustus you cannot imagine yourself being a gripper but what you can at best imagine yourself being is a Julia but I wouldn't be I would be like somebody whose job is like cleaning Julia's shoes or something yeah I would be changing the bathwater. like let's be honest that's what I say all the time I'd be lucky if I was a freed woman like <laughs> yeah we'd be lucky if we were a free pleb uh, and then when you that when that is the only place that you can see yourself because that's your experience of the modern world, then you see what Augustus is doing in a very different way. It's kind of a marker of privilege if people identify with Augustus or not, you know. 
He's the villain of the story very clearly. In ways that like genocidal Julius Caesar isn't. Even though Julius Caesar is a villain, it's just, it's just very different. It is. And Julius Caesar, I think, is so, I don't want to say guileless, but he, like, is so open about what he's doing all the time. He's just like, hello, I'm dictator for life now. I raised an army and I invaded Rome. Whereas everything that Augustus does is always coated in a sugary spoonful of sugar that's like, I restored the Republic. Like, no, no, you no, he didn't. <laughs> but it's so hard to like break down what he's doing because he always very, very perfectly covers it with a sheen of acceptability. And it's so nefarious in that way because it's so much harder to fight and so much harder to dismantle than if somebody turns up with a massive army and says, hello, dictator for life. Like that almost feels, at least it's more honest. <laughs> well, and I think the, I think like, I don't know, we've covered Julius Caesar extensively, and I'm not giving him too much more time on our podcast today. But I think one of the things that I love about Julius Caesar is, unlike Augustus, you see a lot of the times where like he really gambled big, and it almost fell apart. And he was quite desperate in a lot of places. He was rescued by quite a few women, whereas Augustus really works hard to make it be like, it was me and a little bit of my palagrippa. He really erases everyone else out of his narrative because he's so focused on how people will remember him. And I'm not saying that isn't also true of Julius Caesar, but at least in his commentaries, he mentions other people. He even very occasionally mentions women. <laughs> he does. He knows their names and everything. And um... <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been so much fun. Thank you. Where can people find you, find your books, um, everything else online? Uh, you can find everything at msouthern.com. The podcast is History is Sexy. That's also there. The book is in the UK, A History of the Roman Empire and 21 Women. And in America is A Rome of One's Own and is out in November. Um, but they're the exact same book. So you can buy whichever one you like the cover of best. And But yeah, emmasouthern.com is a place to be. Awesome. Again, thank you so much. This has been fucking brilliant. <laughs> yeah, it really has. <laughs> and we will see you all next week. 